Hello. Welcome to Achayim, the Life Institute's Garden of Amuna class, Tuesday night. And uh, tonight, the topic is, the title is, Seeing is More Than Believing. We all know the famous saying, seeing is believing. It actually has its source in the Talmud. It actually has its source in Jewish law. Uh, there's an interesting law. In Ed Nasedayin, a witness cannot become a judge. Um, there's a case, uh, if you know, they're sitting in the walking in the street and they see an event, they see a murder take place, and the person happens to be a judge. He cannot judge the case because he saw it, and once he saw it, it becomes so deeply embedded, he's not capable of seeing two sides to the story. And if a judge cannot see that there's two sides to a story, if there's no room in him to find both verdicts, then he can't sit on the case. So uh, that's how deep that statement is. And Edna Sedayan is built on that concept that seeing is believing, deeply embedded, and you're not open-minded no more once you see something. Uh, what we want to talk about today is that seeing is more than believing. I'm going to share with you something very interesting. And why are we talking about this this week? The name of this week's Torah portion is Re'e. See. Last week's Torah portion what was the first verse? Because you listen. So last week was hearing, listening. This week is seeing. Discussed at length in Hasidus. I will share with you some insight. And then I want to talk about a very specific point of view. I want to also share why does listening come before seeing? Why wouldn't seeing come before listening? Especially according to the teaching of Kabbalah. In the teaching of Kabbalah, the power of sight is the faculty of wisdom. The power of hearing is the faculty of understanding. If you know your ten spirit, you'll know that wisdom comes before understanding. Just to put things in perspective, why is it that there's wisdom and understanding is seeing and hearing? And simply speaking, you see an entire scene in one shot. You can only hear one word at a time. Understanding is the dissecting into the three-dimensional width, length, and depth of any, any insight. It's dissecting detail by detail. The power of the left side of the brain, which is analytical, which is Bina, it process, its modem of apparatuses to divide and conquer. You'll understand that whenever you want to understand something, the first thing you do is you chop it down. So when you're overwhelmed, and then you want to get in control, what you do is you divide the topic into pieces. You divide the situation into pieces. And that's how you dissect it in piece by piece. That is the power of hearing, word by word. Seeing isn't like that. Seeing, if you're at a dark night, a Chodesh night, where the moon is, uh, the moon is not even there, and you're lost in the forest, and the crack of lightning, you see everything in one shot, and yet you've absorbed nothing until you sit down and work over what you've seen. Because the power of sight is so powerful, it just gives you everything in one shot. To be able to process that and act upon it, you have to shift from seeing to hearing from wisdom to understanding. But the question I presented to you was that if according to Kabbalah, wisdom comes before understanding, then why is the portion of Akev, hearing, 
which is understanding, come before the Torah portion of Re'e, which is seeing, which is wisdom. Okay? Before I get into a specific point of view, I want to share with you some general concepts and chassidus on these two Torah portions, on seeing and hearing. As in, every, as in everything that God creates, there's always a virtue. So even though one would say seeing is greater than hearing, there's a virtue to hearing that you don't have in seeing. One of the most simplistic virtues that you and I can relate to is that if there was a just a thin sheet of paper between you and me, just a thin sheet hanging here, you would not see me, but you would be able to hear me. Another concept is in hearing, you can only see the physical. You can't see the spiritual. You can hear the metaphysical. So at certain layers, hearing is more powerful than seeing. On internalization, seeing is more powerful than hearing. Like we said and we started, seeing is believing. Tonight I'm going to present to you that seeing is more than believing. But each one comes with this virtue and weakness. Because seeing is something that you connect to so deeply, it can only be within your realm of reality, which is why you can't see spirituality. You can abstract relationship with spirituality, but you can't have an internalized relationship because you people, physical and spiritual, we are in different worlds. So you can't internalize that which is not within your range. Hearing, because it doesn't so deeply internalize, it can also connect with that which is not directly within our realm. Which is why you can hear that which is not physical. So if you watch actually the virtue and the weakness actually are, as I quote you very often, the Chinese proverb, every light is completed by a shadow. So you definitely have both sides. You have the seeing, you have the hearing, you have the strength of seeing, which is the internalization, the tangible reality. But because it's so deep and internalized, therefore it has to be within our range of reality, thus it's limited. While hearing, because it isn't so deeply internalized, we don't say hearing is believing. Hearing always leaves, leads, leaves for doubt, even if it's, we hear it from the most trusted one. So because it isn't that deeply internalized, it doesn't have to be that tangibly within our range of reality. And the same thing goes with that thin blockage. A thin sheet would stop you and I from seeing each other and wouldn't stop us from hearing each other. Because in the internalization within our range, it needs to be direct connection. That's one concept. We talk about distance and nearness. Seeing is close. It's near. And that's why it has all these limitations of me imposed upon it. Well, hearing is not. It's looser in its connection, and therefore it's not so locked down in my limitations. Is that clear so far? You guys with me? The look of confusion settles upon the audience. <laughs> Seriously, guys, you with me? Okay? Bring it up by Q&A, if not, okay? I did rattle through some very 
long teachings of Chassidus that's taken me years to study under my teachers, and I just rattled it off in about 12 minutes. But I'm rushing because I'm excited about a different twist on everything I've learned until now. You know, one of the blessings of just being sent to yeshiva with or without my will at the age of three and spending my life until 24 and then going back for another year in yeshiva, eventually you develop a set of glasses through which you see everything. So when you hear a lecture, even if it's a secular lecture, just because the mind has been so taught to think this way, so you automatically think that way. You know, one of my teachers, when I was uh, actually coming back from Venezuela, the two-year emissary internship there from the Rebbe, and I actually came back in the opening to the opening speech of uh, the dean of uh, 770, Yeshiva, where we learned for our rabbinical tests, and he said something which, uh, you know, it, uh, it made a mark on me. He said the definition of a yeshiva boy is that when you walk in the street and you see a dog, what you really see is a Talmudic dispute in what ways is a dog considered Jewish law, a domesticated animal known as a behemoth, and in what ways is it considered a non-domesticated beast known as a chaya. He says that's the definition of a yeshiva boy. When you're looking at a dog and you see halacha, what the Jewish law says about a dog, you've become a yeshiva boy. It's the same with chassidus. You learn chassidus, you learn chassidus, you learn chassidus, and eventually you start internalizing, filtering, hearing, transforming everything you see and experience in secular wisdom through that gateway of, you know, the fortunate that we've had at the Rebbe's and then through the, through the mentors and then teachers and the mashpiyim have actually taught us to see things differently. We just see things differently. For those who have grown up on the lap of the Rebbe, it's pretty much impossible when you hear a breakthrough not to ask yourself, okay, and how does this help my service to God? And it just becomes that way. You hear a scientific report and you're translating in your mind, okay, well, how does that help me in my relationship to God and to communicate with others about that relationship with God? Why am I sharing this with you? Because you people have seen my writings, you've seen my, uh, my emails, you've uh, heard me speak more than once, and I'm working through the 12 steps of recovery. And it's really interesting, really, really interesting, that in this arena of my work, in this arena of my studying, this arena of my new horizons, I must say that it has been a total new experience for me and to be able to see how easily it is to see such, such teachings, such a lifestyle through the eyes of Chassidus. So I want to share with you something that I heard this week. I heard it in one of the rooms. For those of you who know anything about the 12 Steps, you go to the rooms. And what I heard in one of the rooms was really interesting to me. And it later totally connected with me in this week's lecture and the chassidus I was learning about this week's Torah portion. It was a speaker's meeting. And the speaker, interesting, never met her before. And she said something which I'm going to say I understand it, but I don't get it. The two different worlds. She spoke about, she, she, this was an AA group. And she spoke about that, how she's had sobriety, 
And then she said something very interesting. My, my brother, she says, for 20 years is a dry drunk. And if any of you read Rabbi Tversky's books, you'll understand very clearly what a dry drunk is. Um, you read the books of uh, AA, the big book, but in Rabbi Tversky's book, actually, he, he explains it beautifully, a book called Addictive Thinking. He talks about the stinking thinking, and he explains over there that the process of the alcoholism and then the drug addict and all, it's not the alcohol, it's the ism that's the problem. The alcohol is just a way to manifest the ism. And that's what happens in all forms of addiction, and that's why all addictions have the same recovery, because it all boils down to the same ism. It's your choice of poison. Is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Is it sex? Is it shopping? Is it workaholic? Is it eating? Is it whatever it is? Codependence? Whatever it is. So he explains over there that the dry drunk is a person who is in sobriety for years and years, but has not transformed in the process of recovery. Now, I'm not saying that transformation means that they're not an addict. You very quickly learn in the world of addiction that you're always a recovering addict. And people fight that word and they fight that label and whatever. I'm not going there right now today. But what I do want to share is that there's such a concept of a dry drunk, a person who has not touched a drop of alcohol in 20 years, but he is or she is a drunk. Then she went on to say, for me, that won't work. I can't be a dry drunk for a long period of time. She was explaining that she personally will relapse. She can't live to be a dry drunk. She says, then she finishes with these words, and this is the quote I want to use for tonight's class. She said that if you're going to come here anyway, go for the full ride. Now here's a very interesting concept. I want to talk about dry drunk and the sobriety concerning Torah and mitzvot. I want to suggest to you that there is such a thing as a religious dry drunk and the way I'm going to translate dry drunk today is a person who is in total control of not acting out meaning that they will not transgress any prohibition in the code of Jewish law and they will do every single one of their obligations that the Jewish law applies upon them they'll never miss a prayer They'll never miss a woman lighting Shabbos candles, a man putting on tefillin. They'll never slip in kosher. They'll never slip in gossip. They'll never slip in looking where they shouldn't look. And they're a dry drunk. There wasn't the transformation. Then you'll have a person who maybe only has three years of sobriety. And in this room right now, we're talking about sobriety as living a Torah observant life but they're not a dry drunk. I want to explain this a little further without giving details. This is being recorded. I was at a place and I got to know an individual who total, total Balteshuva to the point of black hat, beard, long black coat. Not that that really means Balteshuva, but I just want to share with you that not only did he take upon himself the inner makings, but also took upon himself the external dress code, whatever it's worth. I went over to my dean because I was really impressed with this person. person was, I can say, ojalá that I would be as Torah observant as that person is. But I went over to my Rosh Hashiva and I asked my Rosh Hashiva, something's wrong. 
I didn't understand then what I understand today. But what I was asking my Rosh Hashiva is, why is he a dry drunk? It's not just about keeping Torah and mitzvot. There is a shift, a paradigm shift, between the animalistic soul's perception and the godly soul's perception. It's more than just controlling your behaviors. It's more than just controlling your thought, speech, and action, even though that, that itself is a ticket to heaven and beyond. But what I was asking my Roshiva was that this person is a dry drunk. It, it just, it hasn't, there hasn't been the transformation. While other people who maybe aren't as excelled in their actual observance, but they're not dry drunks. You know, when you work the 12 select program, you very frustratedly understand what this woman was sharing at the meeting. You seriously understand that there's two different, two different outcomes of working the program. Someone was not willing to work the program to have a change, but is just looking to be able to control the acting out an active addiction because that's where they felt powerless. But they're not willing to do the transformation of who the person of the ism is. All they want to know is that I now do not have to drink. I don't have to destroy my family. I don't have to lose my business. I don't have to yada, yada, yada in active addiction. And the program will grant you that as long as you do what you have to do. You work the steps, you have your fellowship, you have your sponsor, you will stay away from alcohol, drugs, or whatever, whatever the individual's addict's choice of poison is. But you're not promised not to be a dry drunk for the rest of your life if that's all you're doing. So now the question is, why does someone who was non-observant or even someone that was born observant, why is that person looking to follow the ways of Torah and mitzvot? Is it because they felt powerless and meaningless in their life? Is it because they're afraid of hell? Is it because, God forbid, they had a cardiac arrest and got in touch with immortality and all of a sudden started thinking way beyond today's pleasure? What is it? What is it when the verse says, See that I have placed before you life and death, blessings and curse? What is it that we're seeing? Are we using Torah just to be able to refrain from active addiction? I would suggest tonight that living that type of life of a dry drunk is the gift of last week's Torah portion. It is the gift of being able to listen to God, but not to see. Wisdom is a total different gift than understanding is. Wisdom is creativity, transformational, it's different. Yes, you can now begin to understand why the portion of listening comes before the portion of, of seeing. Because in active addiction, there is no transformation. It's not happening. 
there does need to be the concrete not being an active addiction. We cannot look to have this relationship with God, even so many people self-profess to have it. You cannot have the type of relationship with God that I'm talking about after a cheeseburger and all the other sins. It just doesn't work. We're lying to ourselves. It just doesn't work. Yes, people will tell you that they're spiritual, Kabbalistic, as they're smoking up and having wrongful relationships and as they're eating non-kosher. It's all wonderful. But it's not real. But definitely you understand now that Pasha's listening has to come before Pasha's seeing. But what happens after you fully absorb and enact within your life the powers of last week's Torah portion? What happens when you're fully capable of understanding, of hearing, and thus being able to stay out of active addiction? Simply speaking, we are not sinning. Last week's Torah portion, we're there. We're not idolatrous, we're not adulterous, we're not sinning. We hear what Moses tells us. We're not in active addiction. Now what? What does this Torah portion of Re'eh tell us? And I think if we go back to this woman's share, we can understand that some of us will be able to live a life of Parsha's Akev listening all our life. Some of us won't even be frustrated. We'll be so happy at the rewards that comes from not being an active addicted, an act, well, an active addiction. Just the beautiful rewards that comes from living a Torah life. Davening three times a day, keeping kosher, keeping Shabbos. It, it's just, we can just, for those of us that were thrown around in the hurricanes of the self-will, not knowing how to accept anything, entitlement ruling our lives. There's no such thing as a sin because I'm entitled to everything that I can physically experience. And then all of a sudden you see the gift of inner congruency, inner peace, family values that comes from Parshas Akev, just listening to the Code of Jewish Law. It's just simple. Don't act out like they say in the rooms. Just don't pick up. Just don't do it. And as long as you can do that, you can have your sponsor, you can have your fellowship, you can have your numbers, you can have your work in the program, you will be a Jewish code of law person. And the life that that offers us is to be able to step out of insanity. Not living Jewish law is living in insanity. It's just the way it is for a Jew that's living in insanity. Not having a Shabbos, not having a kosher diet, not praying to God, not keeping the holidays, not keeping the mitzvah of charity, it is insanity. We very quickly feel empty, we very quickly magnify that unbelievable emotional black hole and you're going to fall into active addiction and all of a sudden we act out. We act out thinking that wealth is going to go ahead and fill the hole. We act out by thinking that power is going to. We act out by thinking that beauty is going to. We act out by thinking that pleasure is going to. We try to fill the black hole. But the black hole cannot be filled by that for a Jew. The black hole can be filled by a specific divine lifestyle.
called Code of Jewish Law. And to be able to appreciate Parsha's Akev is just one thing. Listen to everything. Go back and read the Torah portion of last week. Moses is setting up a program. He's telling us to be careful who you hang out with. You're leaving the clouds. He's telling you to be careful about that entitlement, to think that what we do have we conquered by ourselves. Don't take your will back from the higher power. You're going to end up in trouble. Just reread that Torah portion with a different set of lenses. And you'll see that Moses is offering us a lifestyle free of active addiction. He's offering us a lifestyle where insanity does not have to run havoc in our life. And then we come to this week's Torah portion. See, it's not enough to hear. And what I'm suggesting here today is that last week's Torah portion offers us sobriety from active addiction, but does not offer us sobriety from stinking thinking. You will notice that their entire affiliations of the Jewish people, God bless them, but they walk around mad, angry, rigid. There's a reason why so many Jews have a vision of a rabbi as a very stern, rigid, frustrated old man. It comes from somewhere because there are entire affiliations that live that way. I'm not suggesting one is better than the other. I'm just talking about with a complete bias to Hasidus. I actually went back the next night hoping that I would see that girl again. Because the entire night, I really understood that I understand what she's saying, but I don't get what she's saying. What is there in recovery beyond being free from the insanity of active addiction? What is there? What is that transformation that she's talking about? God has his ways. She wasn't there. And I was stuck going back to myself, my own higher power, to figure out what. And the truth is that's not healthy. It's, you, need a, you need a sponsor when you want to work the 12 steps, no matter what you're trying to fix in your life. It's funny. You know, if you're going to be your own sponsor, realize you're the one that got yourself into this situation. How are you getting yourself out of it? It's, it's a change of perception. A change of stinking thinking. How exactly do you get there without someone else? Let's quote the Talmud again. The person that falls into the pit can't get out of the pit. He needs someone out of the pit to give him a hand. So what is this re'eh? What was she talking about? What is this transformation that takes place not through hearing but through seeing? You see, you can hear the do's and the do not do's. What you can't see is where this comes from and where it could lead to. To see the Torah as a constitution of do's and don'ts, as a, government's, a governance over society, is to not understand what Torah really is. Torah is the bridge between the finite mortal human being 
and the omnipotent infinite God. When we say in the Shema a most beautiful saying, to live heavenly days here on earth, that isn't about staying away from active addiction. Heavenly days isn't not acting out. The not acting out is between being in the gutters or being in a home, being alone or being in a family. It's not about heavenly days. It's about moral civil days. That's a total different thing. But the Shema speaks about heavenly days upon earth. I've used this example at Fabrengens. I usually don't do this in the sober environment. But if I can just try to draw imagery. In Parshish Akev, we have an amazing puppet called Pinocchio. In Parshish Rie, we have the transformation to a living child. Now, Pinocchio, for all you that know the story, was a walking, talking, feeling, mischievous puppet. But if you're walking, talking, feeling, and mischievous, what's the difference if you're made out of wood or you're made out of flesh and blood? There is a difference. One's a puppet, one's a human. There's something about the human being that even walking, talking, magical puppets don't have. In the world of Kabbalah, there's something about a soul being in this world that even spiritual angels cannot do. So if we're going to call angels puppets, imagine how powerful those puppets are. But, here's a key word. They're not precious. Beloved, perfect, but not precious. It's the imperfect human being that's precious. To be able to have that transformation of seeing yourself as a precious child of God, unique with no replica, because if there was a replica of you, you wouldn't be here. God does not need two of anyone. So to be able to move into that concept where I don't see myself as a consistent, struggling, staying away from active addiction, but I can see myself as a precious, loved child of God, unique. For those of us in the room that have ever dealt with addiction in our own lives, we know that the one thing that's the curse of an addict is that he feels or she feels they don't fit in. Unique as a curse. But if we can go ahead and embrace Pasha's Re'eh, if we can embrace that transformation where it's not a book of laws that's going to keep me out of hell, physically and spiritually, in this world and in the afterworld, but rather we can see it as a pursuit of a transformation to become a precious, beautiful, unique child of Hashem. See that I have placed before you. Keywords. I believe that that's the difference between Pasha's Akev and Pasha's Re'e. That's the difference between the sobriety of just being free of the insanity of active addiction versus the transformation from the stinking thinking to the divine heavens upon earth, divine days upon earth, heavenly days upon earth.
Again, most of us would love to skip the listening parsha and dive straight into the seeing parsha. Don't waste your time. Doesn't work. Spending my life in yeshiva all my years, I've tried every single possible trick to be able to avoid the step called obedience. There's got to be a way to get around that and still be a chassid and still live the life of spirituality. Many, many wounds and scars later, I can tell you it does not exist. It does not exist. There is no way around Parsha's Akif. There is no way around being in sobriety of active addiction. It just doesn't work. But after that, you need to ask yourself, okay, I got what I wanted. I came to the program not to drink. I'm not drinking. I came to the program not to use. I'm not using. I came to the bed. Whatever it is. Okay, now what? Let's just stick to the program so we don't slip back. Or do we say, okay, we did Parsha's Akev. It's working. And we can work this program for the rest of our life and stay dry. But how about Parsha's Re'e? How about going from hearing into seeing? The Alter Rebbe quotes his teacher twice in Tanya saying that my teacher, the Magad, has taught me that only in the faculty of Chachma, in the sphere of Chachma, does the true infinite, Ein Sof, rest. Nowhere else. Because in Chachma is true humility. Bina is already ego. The word Chachma is Koachma. The power, the potential of just asking what? Seeing yourself as a, but what are we, to quote Moses. Being is already, I need to be empowered, dissecting, dividing, conquering. The power of taking it to the next level, Pasha's Re'eh, is a challenge that this week's Torah portion gives us. It's a challenge that always comes connected with the month of Elul. The king in the field, compassion the last month of the Jewish year. So I would ask for this week of myself, of you, to be able to vision, have, have an uh, envision, have a vision of beyond just the active addiction, beyond the being free of bills, the being free of needs, the being free of, of actively sabotaging our life physically, spiritually, relation-wise, emotional-wise, intellectually-wise, can we go beyond that? Can we yearn beyond just the quietness of insanity? Can we yearn for a total transformation of the wooden Pinocchio into the precious child of God? Can we embrace our uniqueness and realize that we've always felt different, but what's different about us is exactly what's precious about us? It is God's personalized gift to us. Not a mass production line. There's something unique about me. There's something unique about each and every one of you. Can we transform from the, I'm going to use the word non-Jewish thinking process, that all man was born in sin and must die to be freed. That's not Judaism at all. We don't consider the act of reproduction a sin, even if it isn't for the sake of reproduction, as long as it's done in a kosher Jewish law fashion. It's not a sin. 
and actually is the first commandment that God gave Adam and Eve. We're not born in sin, and we don't need to die to become free of sin. We're precious. We're precious, and we're more precious while we're down here than when we're up there. Because while we're down here, we can make a difference. When we're up there, we're just the reaction of differences taking place. To live that life every single day, to embrace Pasha's Re'eh, to embrace the transformation of not being a, a troublemaking, helpless, powerless, cursed wooden puppet that ends up always in the wrong place, but rather to see ourselves as a real precious child of God, unique, beautiful, the center of the universe before who God puts the two paths of life that will make a difference for eternity. And that's today's class.